going to read just a small section of the chapter, beginning in verse 1. And with God's word open before us, let's seek the Lord in prayer and ask the Lord to speak to our hearts through his word. Let's pray. O Lord, as we come into thy presence now with thy word open before us, we pray that thou wilt give us the needed grace that enables us to open our hearts to hear and heed what thou wilt say to us. We pray, Lord, that you'll spare us from merely going through the empty motions of enduring a sermon, so to speak, and grant that thy spirit will bear witness to the truth of thy word and make the heart application to every heart need in accordance with thy knowledge of every heart need. And Lord, we thank thee that thou art aware of every heart need here tonight. So Lord, do good to thy people, feed thy flock, build us up in the faith, unite our hearts in the fear of God and love of Christ, equip us, O Lord, to launch into this new week with resolute determination that we will be faithful and fruitful in our service to King Jesus, our Redeemer and our friend. So take me up, O Lord, and use me. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 9, we begin in verse 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled, and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. Amen. We'll end our reading in verse 8. And we know that the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his word for his name's sake. In this section of Matthew's gospel, we find the Lord Jesus establishing his authority as the Messiah. In chapters 5 through 7, that section that we know as the Sermon on the Mount, we find Christ establishing his authority by the way he taught. This is the thing that so impressed those that heard him teach. So in chapter 7 of verse 28 we read, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Beginning in chapter 8, we find the Lord Jesus establishing his authority another way. He performed miracles. He cleansed the leper. Then he healed the centurion's servant. After that, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. 
As the word got out and his fame spread, we find a culminating statement describing the extent of those miracles in chapter 8 and verse 16, when it says, When the even was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. This was all in fulfillment of what Isaiah had foretold in Isaiah 53 and verse 4, himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. I can remember Dr. Allison describing it this way. Basically, he cleared out the hospitals. Later in chapter 8, we find miracles of a different kind. The Lord Jesus stills the stormy sea. Then he casts the demons out of two men that were possessed. Now when we come into chapter 9, we find the Lord still performing miracles. He heals a man who is sick with palsy. But now this healing takes on a strange and a very important twist. This man is brought to Jesus by other men who carry him on a bed. The thing that's not recorded in Matthew's gospel, that is recorded in Mark and Luke, is that these men had to be creative in the way that they brought this man to Christ. They did not immediately have access to Christ because of the crowd. And so we find them lifting the man to the roof of the house, then they tear a hole in the roof, and then they let this man down through the hole. That is certainly a unique circumstance in the course of Christ's miracles. But even more impressive and equally unique is that now for the first time, Christ actually heals the man. He issues a statement that all his previous miracles were designed to vindicate. When he says in verse 2, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. Oh, what a precious word is that from Christ. We know, of course, that's the best thing in the world for a lost sinner to hear. This is what he needs more than anything in the world. He needs his sins forgiven. He needs this more than he needs to rise up and walk. He needs this more than he needs sight restored or hearing regained. And the reason that he needs this more than any physical blessing is because the issues that arise from sin are eternal issues. This statement by Christ, thy sins be forgiven thee, is a statement you see that bears everlasting consequences. Physical maladies are temporal in nature, but sins forgiven or unforgiven bear consequences that last forever. So this is a great word for those who are lost and in sin, and this is a great word for Christians who have sinned, and we have sinned, and we do sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. John writes in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. And on those occasions where we sin, we have need to hear it again, to hear it from God's word, to hear it spoken to our hearts by God's spirit through that word. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Oh, that you might hear such a pronouncement from Christ himself. 
spoken to your own soul this evening, that it would be the still, small voice of God's Spirit speaking to your hearts in such a way that the impact of this glorious truth would carry you forward in good cheer. I want to consider this statement for a few moments this evening, thinking very simply upon the blessing of sins forgiven. The blessing of sins forgiven. And to understand this blessing, we must first understand by way of contrast the paralyzing effect of sin. The paralyzing effect of sin. Chapter 9, verse 2. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. Palsy is a term that covers a number of infirmities in the New Testament. Albert Barnes, in his commentary, lists five different forms that this disease might take. And they all have a common element to them, and that they all contain a form of paralysis. Matthew and Mark use the same Greek term to describe this man's condition. Luke uses a different term. And Luke, being a physician, may be a little more specific. The term Luke uses describes a man who suffers on one side from the relaxing of the nerves. Reminds me of the symptoms of a stroke. And if you know anything about a stroke, then you know that the physical effects of such a thing are oftentimes very devastating. I have seen this when I've visited nursing homes. I remember an extension ministry that I was a part of down at Bob Jones University, and we went regularly to the city of Brevard up here in North Carolina to a nursing home. And I remember one lady in particular, she was in a wheelchair, but she was always coherent, always easy to speak to, and very supportive of what we were doing there. And then at one particular time we came up and she had been hit with a stroke and it was a night and day contrast to what we had known of her condition previous to that. Luke adds another detail that the others don't contain. In Luke chapter 5 and verse 18, we are told not merely that this man was sick with the palsy, but that he was taken with a palsy is how the phrase reads. And the implication is that this infirmity then came quite suddenly upon this man and had a crippling, paralyzing effect upon him. This, I suppose, could further support the notion of a stroke. Stroke victims, as I said, may be perfectly healthy in one instance and then suddenly paralyzed in the next. Now we know from a statement made by Christ's own disciples in John chapter 9, that the view was very prevalent in those days that sin was the cause for men and women being overtaken with a disease. Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples asked Christ in John chapter 9. And in a general sense, you could say that there is an element of truth in what the disciples ask. Diseases of any and all kinds, you see, trace their origins to sin. Before men fell into sin, there were no diseases. 
in his original condition, man was perfectly healthy, and he wasn't made to get sick. That's hard to imagine, isn't it? In a day where diseases are so common, we count it a great blessing if we're able to maintain our health for any amount of time at all. And we know that sicknesses become inevitable at some time or another. Won't it be great when redemption is consummated and Christ returns and there will be no more diseases or infirmities that exist now on account of the entrance of sin into the world? So there is a connection between diseases and sin, but to apply a specific disease to a specific sin is very often, in fact, I'd say it's most often, it's to misread God's purpose and God's providence. If sin was the sole excuse for visiting men with sickness, then God would never be at a loss for excuses for bringing sickness upon any of us. But in his providence, God has ordained that these sicknesses serve other purposes than merely reminding us that disease did enter into this world on account of man's fall into sin. In the case of that blind man in John chapter 9, he was born blind for a purpose that would one day give Christ the opportunity to manifest his glory. In the case of Job, He was afflicted with sickness for the purpose of preparing him for an even greater manifestation of the glory of his Redeemer. That whole trial from start to purpose was designed by God's grace. James makes that clear in his uh, epistle, giving his take on Job, that this took place uh, that God's grace might be manifested, and God's grace was manifested to Job. Oftentimes, the afflictions that God brings upon us serve that purpose. This becomes a very good and effective way to minister to yourself when you find yourself going through times of sickness. Remember the patience of Job, and remember that in the end, God had a great purpose of grace for Job. It's not really such a great mystery when it comes to Job's sufferings. There have been those that have searched that book deeply, uh, looking for the cause as to why Job suffered. And to those that look for the sin in Job's life that brought those sufferings upon him, they aligned themselves with Job's friends. It's exactly what they were doing. Job, you must have sinned. You, you couldn't possibly be suffering the way you are if you were righteous. That was the thinking, and yet it was totally wrong, completely wrong, and that becomes quite evident when you read the first chapter of Job, when you hear God's commendation of a servant. If you consider my servant Job, there's none like him in the earth, an upright man, one who fears God and eschews evil, and you know that the devil then brings a challenge to God, and God is pleased to bring up that challenge. But as I point out any time I make reference to Job, the thing you have to keep in mind there is that everything that Job was about to undergo, uh, the loss of wealth, the loss of health, the loss of family members, the loss basically of everything, all that came upon him 
because of God's commendation of him. And yet his friends would do their dead level best to convince him that all those things came upon him because of God's condemnation. John Calvin makes an interesting observation with regard to Job's friends. He suggests that when they came and they saw how bad his condition really was, they had a change of mind about him. And they thought, surely this man must be under God's judgment, when in fact he wasn't. And we know that he wasn't from the narration in the first chapter of the book. And in the end, Job would know more of Christ than he had ever known before. There was a purpose of grace behind that trial. Now the thing I want you to see from this man afflicted with palsy is that it did have a paralyzing effect on him. And if we could draw a spiritual analogy from his physical condition, we could say that unforgiven sin also has a paralyzing effect upon the sinner and upon the Christian as well. If we go day by day without the good cheer that should be our portion on account of sins forgiven, then we become spiritually paralyzed, as it were. We lose out in our walk with Christ because our hearts become hard to the gospel of his grace. We fail to take into account the blessing of sins forgiven. With the knowledge of sins forgiven, we can face the trials of life, and we can still be of good cheer. We find this illustrated in Acts chapter 8. I won't have you turn to it, but call to mind those that believed in Christ in Acts chapter 8 had to pay a price. They were driven from their homes. I think the term that Luke uses is that they were scattered. I've always been amazed at how quickly we can read over that verse that describes that they were scattered. And if you park in that verse and contemplate all that that verse takes into account, you could say of them, they lost everything and they had to flee. And yet, we go on to read that they still knew the power of great joy even when they had to flee. Where does that joy come from? How is it that the early Christians could still rejoice when their faith cost them so much? How is it that we read of them, not that they went away as Christian refugees, dragging their feet in the sand with downcast countenances? No, it says that there was great joy, and they went everywhere preaching the gospel. They knew the truth. Well, they knew a couple of truths. They knew the truth, certainly, that Christ was risen. And they knew the truth of sins forgiven. They had heard the gospel of forgiveness of sins. They had, spiritually speaking, you could say, heard Christ say to them, Be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. And when that message is brought home to the heart, then no external circumstances, no matter how severe, can rob the believer of great joy. The psalmist understood this when he prayed in Psalm 35 and verse 9, and we would do well to make this our own petition when he says, Say unto my soul, 
I am thy salvation. Oh, how we need to hear the Lord communicate that to us. We must therefore open our hearts and seek Christ to say it to our souls again and again and to say it often, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. And we must assure ourselves of Christ's authority by simply noting the miracles he performed which all vindicated that authority. We begin to wither in the absence of such assurance or such a word. And eventually, we become bedridden, so to speak, spiritually speaking. We see then the contrast or the backdrop upon which this saying is pronounced, the paralyzing effect of sin. Let's think for a moment next on the glorious pronouncement of Christ. Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Remember what I said in my opening remarks, that everything Christ was teaching and doing had a specific purpose of vindicating his authority. He taught them as one having authority, Chapter 7, verse 29. In this statement, he's made in chapter 9, in verse 2, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. His authority is challenged, at least in the minds and hearts of the scribes. Verse 3, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. Mark and Luke both add an important statement about authority to their account of this event when they say, Why doth this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? Who indeed? Now look at what he says in response to their thoughts in verse 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins... Then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. Christ is authorized to make such a statement. He has the authority to forgive sins. He has the power and authority to minister to the deepest spiritual needs of our hearts. His purpose in all the healings that are recorded in these chapters is not merely to leave people in his wake that are physically healthy, all of whom would die eventually. His purpose, rather, was to establish his authority to meet the deepest issues of men's hearts. And when that man picked up his bed and went home with it, Christ's authority was vindicated. I have met people along the way who have borne testimony to the healing power of God. They told me that they were miraculously healed of some disease. And whenever I'm encountered by such people, I don't try to dispute with them whether or not they were really sick or whether or not they were really supernaturally healed. Christ can certainly heal people today. And in some very rare instances, I have no doubt that he does so. But what I try to impress upon those who say they've been miraculously healed 
is that they should not conclude on the basis of their physical condition that all is well between them and God. The issue on Judgment Day, you see, isn't going to be your physical condition during the brief time you occupied this earth. The issue is going to be rather your sin. You'll be scrutinized for righteousness. What about your sin? Have your sins been forgiven? Do you see the need for forgiveness? Have you repented and believed in Christ for forgiveness? The healings in the New Testament have a higher design in answer to a deeper need in all our lives. They show that Christ has all power and authority to forgive us our sins. We need to be convinced of that. We need the truth of it stamped deeply on our hearts. Christ really can forgive you. And the greatest miracle to attest to his authority was yet to come. Following his resurrection, he would say to his disciples, All power or authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth, in Matthew 28, 17. Or as Paul says to the Romans, Christ was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. His resurrection represents the vindication of his atoning death. He has authority to forgive your sins and my sins because he paid the price for them in his blood. And his sacrifice was accepted by his Father as is evidenced by the glorious truth that he did indeed rise from the dead. This is why we can all be of good cheer tonight. Christ has the authority to say to you, Thy sins be forgiven thee. This is a gracious and a righteous proclamation for Christ to make. He has the authority to say it with regard to you and to me. Take the time then as you read the Gospels to note the vindication of Christ's authority because every miracle he performs becomes a message of assurance to your soul and to mine. He really can forgive because he has authority to forgive. And that should lead you, anytime you read the account of his miracles, it should lead you to shout, Hallelujah! His authority is vindicated. As we become aware of and impressed by that authority we will indeed be of good cheer. It remains for us then to consider briefly and finally the means to enjoying this forgiveness. Now in the case of the man sick with palsy, he needed to be brought to Christ. We can draw a very simple and plain application from this statement that there are many that need to be brought to Christ in prayer. How many do you know that are in need of forgiveness of sins? Bring them to Christ in prayer. And don't stop praying for them. Don't stop asking, seeking, knocking, pleading for Christ to exercise his authority and forgive them and make them aware by his power of their need for that forgiveness. 
How many Christians do we know that are spiritually paralyzed because they're made more aware of their sins than they are of Christ's authority to forgive their sins? When the reality of sins displaces the authority of Christ, then the result is paralyzed Christians who are wholly lacking in effectiveness because they're wholly lacking in joy. Only by being impressed with the grounds of Christ's statement can they be of good cheer and rise up and follow and serve Christ. And it is only as those outside the faith see Christians cheerfully serving and worshiping and living for Christ that the statement in verse 8 can apply. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God which had given such power unto men. What did the multitude see? They saw a man of good cheer whose sins had been forgiven. And they saw Christ prove that he had the authority to do that very thing. Does the world see that in you, I wonder? They will, if you bask in the truth of sins forgiven... They will if you live in the joy of knowing that Christ has authority to forgive and has by that authority forgiven you. We must thank him then and appropriate his forgiveness to our souls. Every instance of a miracle of Christ recorded in the New Testament should preach that message to us. Here, then, is a very practical application of the miracles of Christ. They preach to us that Christ has authority to forgive us of our sins. Oftentimes, people read of the miracles of Christ, and they fail to hear the message that those miracles are designed to preach. They place too much emphasis on the things of this present evil world. And they reason to themselves something like this, Christ healed others, why not me? This kind of approach to the miracles of Christ completely overlooks the design behind Christ's miracles. Oh, he can heal diseases. And in some cases, he does heal diseases. In fact, I believe that those that are in the realm of medicine would say that every time uh, medicine works, it's, it's supernatural and miraculous. Any kind of healing, in a sense, is miraculous. In other cases, it's his design, though, to put his followers on display by allowing them to go through trials and afflictions and diseases and infirmities that they may shine brightly for him, even in that condition. And as I said this morning, and I'm happy to repeat it this evening, that is exactly what I see in Greg Munger. My, how that man shines brightly, even to this very day. And I thank God for that. What a glorious testimony we bear, when in the midst of trials and diseases, we can still praise the Lord How? How can we praise the Lord, some ask, when he healed others, but for whatever reason he does not see fit to heal me? What is there about me that puts me beyond the scope of his healing power? 
Those kind of questions only reveal a carnal outlook toward the miracles of Christ. A spiritual outlook toward those miracles will enable to praise him because of the message of Christ's miracles. And what is that message? The message is that Christ has the power and authority to forgive sins. I thank God then that Christ healed this man of the palsy hundreds of years ago. Why would I have interest in the temporal healing of a man a long time ago, a man who uh, a short time after that, relatively speaking, would have passed the scene of time? Well, I have an interest in that miracle because it preaches the same message to me today. And the message is Christ has the power and authority to forgive us our sins. We must worship him then and confess his authority as our risen and glorified Savior. And we must hear him say to our souls, even afresh this evening, Son, be of good cheer, thy sins be forgiven thee. This miracle and all the others that he performed prove it. Oh, may we then receive it. And if you have not received his forgiveness, may you find yourself compelled to receive it even this evening. He does have the authority to forgive your sins. He's proven it time and time and time again during the days he walked on this earth and from his resurrection from the grave. He proves that he has the authority to say, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. Let's close then in prayer this evening. And let's all pray. And as we're bowed in prayer, I will invite you right where you sit. If you have not applied to Christ for the forgiveness you need, now's the time to do it. It is your deepest need. You may think you need a lot of other things. You don't need anything so much as you need this blessing that Christ has the authority to bestow. You need forgiveness of sins. May God give you the help you need to call upon him for that forgiveness if you've never received it. And Christian, you need him too. You continue to struggle. There is a carnal nature in all of us. We are far from perfect Thank God there is forgiveness for us as well. There is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. The psalmist says, thank God for that forgiveness, even as you appropriate it this evening. O Lord, as we bow in thy presence and bring this meeting to a close, we thank thee for what Christ has proven by the miracles he performed, that he does indeed have this authority to forgive sins, we thank thee, Lord, for thy willingness to forgive sins. We thank thee that thou hast earned the right to tell us that our sins are forgiven. We know, O oh Lord, that this forgiveness comes to us fully and freely, and it is available to us for the asking. But we also know, O oh Lord, that it cost thee much, even thy life's blood, in order for this forgiveness to be ministered. So, Lord, take our thanks tonight for this glorious blessing. May the truth of it fill and thrill our souls 
And may we launch out into this new week uh, being filled with good cheer in the knowledge of sins forgiven. And Lord, for those that have never applied to thee to have their sins forgiven, may it please thee, Lord, to strive with them by thy spirit and convict them of their sins and compel them to flee to Christ to the saving of their souls. So, Lord, hear our prayers and take our thanks, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.